0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, junior talking today with the British historian Adrian Goldsworthy about his new book, Pax Romana, War, Peace, and Conquest in the Roman World. I look forward to the discussion, Adrian, because in Washington these days, the makers of America's foreign policy look to the past for clues to the future. They struggle with the hope of a Pax Americana securing the peace and prosperity of a world destabilized, sadly, by war and the rumor of war, by terrorist barbarism everywhere east and west of Suez. You say in your preface that the ancient Roman way of doing things doesn't lend itself to our modern circumstance. Nevertheless, it is worth learning from history what are the uses and limits of military power. You present the Pax Romana as a remarkable achievement, deserving admiration. Maybe you can begin by defining the term Pax Romana as the Romans understood it. How long did it obtain, and over how broad an area of what was then the civilized world?
1: Well, obviously, it's an expression the Romans coined themselves. They talk about imposing pax, peace on the world. And they don't start as peacemakers. They start as conquerors. And they never hide the fact that they are creating an empire, imperium. It's where we get the, the word from. But for them, it meant power. And only gradually did it become territorial empire, owning provinces, staying there permanently administrating. So the Romans expand by the middle of the second century BC. They are dominant throughout the Mediterranean world. They don't have a a serious challenger left. And they fought a lot of wars to get that. They keep fighting wars and they profit from wars. They get glory for the aristocracy. They get plunder. They get slaves. Rome becomes wealthy through expansion. And it's really only in the next century, in the first century BC, when you get this sense that some of them are looking around and thinking, well, we've conquered all this, what do we do with it? And what obligations do we have to the people that we've now conquered, turned into provincials of the Roman Empire? And they start to talk about preserving peace, preserving trade free from piracy, from banditry, travel, all sorts of things keeping the security within the provinces, not simply this is something we've conquered so we can profit, we've conquered so we can exploit the provinces ruthlessly for our own benefit, but we have some obligation to them. And it's a mixture. It's self-interest as well, because obviously the empire will continue to be profitable if you look after it. And if you keep it stable and peaceful, people can pay more taxes. So you have this shift that really culminates under the first emperor, Augustus.
0: After Augustus, they're not interested, the Romans, in building democracy elsewhere in the world. I mean, they're not trying to improve for the sake of improving the uh, lives and governments and tribes and clans of the surrounding people.
1: Again, not a, not at all at first, and then only to a limited degree later on. They they conquer, they fight wars, they claim they are wars that are defending either themselves, their interests, or the interests of their allies. But obviously that wears a little bit thin as you end up conquering most of the world. Um, this isn't just about defending yourself. But you do have to remember the ancient world was a very violent, very warlike place. So, you know, the Romans are not the only aggressors out there, but they have this knack of building something permanent when they do fight a war, when they do conquer. Other people do just plunder and go. The Romans start creating an empire and they start turning a lot of people in the conquered areas, in the provinces, into Romans. And you become Roman citizens and you get the rights of of, of a citizen as if you'd been a Roman, and all your ancestors back to the Urdot were Roman. So they absorb others in a way that no other empire really has managed. But they also have this growing sense. You have it in the the poet Virgil writing under Augustus. Augustus parades the fact that he's ended civil war, he's brought stability back, but was a great conqueror. And Virgil has the the god Jupiter tell the Romans that it is their destiny to spare the conquered and overcome the proud with war. You know, that if anyone's too proud, too arrogant, in other words, they don't submit to you straight away, then you fight them. But once they've submitted, once you've you've either beaten them or they've just surrendered, then you have to treat them fairly. You have to impose good custom, good law. So they do go for stability, but the, the striking thing is, is how little... They actually intervene in the day to day affairs of most of the communities within the provinces. So, there are democracies out there in the Roman world and in the Roman provinces, particularly in the Greek East, where you have elected magistrates who govern a city year by year, regular turnover, have their own laws, their own courts, and the Romans preserve and support that because they haven't got the administrative machine to go in and run things for themselves. So, they actually intervene as little as possible in the lives of the peoples, the tribes, the communities of the world. So it's a a strange mixture. As long as you accept their dominance and as long as you pay your taxes and don't do anything they don't want you to do, then they really aren't too interested in what you're doing on a a day-to-day basis. So in in a funny sort of way, Greek democracy, such as it was, is preserved in many areas in the Roman period. In a way, it won't be after the fall of the Roman Empire.
0: They're also tolerant of local religions.
1: Very much so. Again, unless it conflicts with Roman rule or is a destabilizing influence. So they suppress Druidism, the religion of the Druids in Gaul and in Britain. But this was involved in human sacrifice, encouraged headhunting between the tribes, raiding, all this sort of thing, and was also a parallel political structure beyond the tribes that rivaled Rome. Therefore, you don't want that. But they let all the other Gallic and British cults go on. Lots of their gods and goddesses are still worshipped. They they might take on a Roman form. They might be merged with a Roman god or goddess, but you're allowed to do your own thing. It's a great exception that even with their attitude to the Jewish population, not just in Judea, the Roman world because it was quite wide widespread, only really hardens after the Jewish rebellions. Up until that point, they're seen as a bit different, a bit eccentric, a bit perverse. But there isn't really strong anti-Semitism in the Roman world until later on. Christians, of course, appear as another group that they can't quite understand because they're not a nation. And their denial of other gods apart from their god means that they're seen almost as atheists. But you have this curious exchange between a Roman governor at the beginning of the 2nd century AD in what would now be northern Turkey in Bithynia, a chap called Pliny and the Emperor Trajan. Christians have been arrested by a local city and brought before Pliny. He puts them on trial. If he finds out that they're Christians by asking them three times whether or not they're a Christian, and they say, yes, they are, he executes them. However, if they say they're not a Christian anymore and they perform a little ritual, he lets them go. Trajan, when he replies, says, as my governor, you've done absolutely the right thing. That's how you should treat these people. However, don't go looking for them. Only carry out this procedure and only try them and then execute them if they're arrested by the locals and brought to you. So if the locals aren't bothered by them, neither are we. But if the local authorities are bothered, then that means the local authorities aren't quite so powerful, aren't quite so secure. We don't want them upset. So if they want it done, we'll do it. But otherwise, we're really not that bothered. So again, it's this this lack of interest. As long as you don't cause trouble, you can pretty much do what you like.
0: And do they, within the Roman Empire... What is the state of play for the people's resident? I mean, is there profitable trade? Are people free to express their ideas? Or or is it possible to uh, become rich uh, without being a a Roman citizen?
1: Oh, very much so. The levels of long-distance trade are far higher than anything you'll get for another 1,500 years after the fall of the Roman Empire, and anything you've had before. There's always long distance trade in the world, but it, in the quantity is much lower. The Roman world is a world of lots of objects, lots of goods, far more people have a share in it. And the sheer quantity of finds you get of, of jewelry, of pottery, of glassware, whatever it might be, on a Roman site is much, much higher than anything you get from the periods before and anything you get from the periods afterwards. And many of the people profiting are not Roman citizens, they're they're the locals out there, because it's much easier to travel, it's much safer to travel. You've got this great road network they build, but also a sense that the world is being policed, that you're not, one state isn't fighting another. So if you are a wealthy man in Greece, you could go and buy an estate in Gaul, and the law will protect you, and there isn't going to be a war that means that's overrun and you lose all your investment. So it works particularly for the very rich, but also... It's striking that you find such Um There's a, a tombstone from just south of Hadrian's Wall in the north of Britain of a woman who's British, who'd been born a slave, then freed by her husband, uh, sorry, by her owner, who marries her, becomes her husband. Now she's from Britain, from roughly the area of just north of London these days, moved up just a couple of hundred miles. Her husband is from Palmyra, you know, the city out there on the Euphrates, there in Syria that's been in the news recently for all the wrong reasons with IS destroying some of the monuments there. And the last line of it, it's all in Latin. She's depicted as this sort of perfect Roman matron sitting there in her chair. The last line's in Aramaic, going right to left rather than left to right. And it's um, uh, Regina, the wife of Berates, that's his name. Alas, so you've got somebody who's moved from one end of the empire to the other, And he appears to be either a a soldier or a small-scale trader, or possibly first a soldier and then a trader. But as people are moving, so are ideas. And in the same way that religions like Christianity can spread, like Mithraism, some of the others, and goods and ideas and learning, this is a highly literate world. You can send letters to people from one end of the empire to another. People can be reading the same books. It's very striking that even fashions change very quickly within about a decade or so people stop wearing one pattern of shoes and everybody's wearing a new style hairstyles are copied, particularly women's hairstyles right the way through the empire so there's there are mechanisms for all this information all these ideas all these looks even all these fashions to move around in what's a very modern way even though communication is still only at the slow pace of you know how fast you can ride a horse or sail a ship
0: Gibbon, in the opening of his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, talks about the second century of the Christian era. The empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth and the most civilized portion of mankind. The frontiers of that extensive monarchy were guarded by ancient renown and disciplined valor. Is that the... Pax Romana you're talking about I mean does it last for maybe 200 years or is, is it uh, is it much longer
1: It's probably at its its height for about 200 years or a little bit more 200 250 from the time of Augustus who wins the last civil war in the republic in 31 BC right the way through to the the end of the second century AD when the emperor Commodus you know the the chap who's depicted in the movie Gladiator gets murdered and then there's another civil war. There'd only been one civil war between Augustus and this time when Nero committed suicide without an heir and you had four emperors within the space of a year. Now having only two civil wars in a couple of centuries doesn't sound like a great boast till you look at what happened either side. First century BC was very disturbed with the Romans fighting Romans. The third century BC, fourth century BC into the fifth when the Western empire collapses, there are only three decades without a civil war it's it's endemic it's it's simply ongoing all the time and the biggest threat to the Pax Romana comes not from outsiders from foreigners, but from Roman fighting Roman in civil wars that are purely about power there's never any ideology involved, never any different political program it 's simply about who will be emperor
0: so it's it's within the frontiers it's it's not on the other side of the frontiers because even by this third 4th century A.D., you have armed camps around the almost the entire expanse of what of was well, still the Roman Empire. Is that right?
1: Yes. I mean, that's that's really been there since the start. The army becomes more settled during the course of the 1st century A.D. It changes from being an army that's really waiting for the next invasion, the next conquest, to one that's substantially defending what they already have and is stretched around the frontiers. Very little of it inside the provinces, in the internal areas. They don't see armed bodies of soldiers very often at all. And there is quite a lot of warfare or threat of warfare or small-scale raiding on the frontiers throughout this period. It's never an entirely peaceful world. It's just that rebellions inside pretty much stop and... As it goes on, even when the empire starts to break up, there aren't really independence movements in any of the provinces. There's no one who suddenly decides, I want to be a Gaul again or a Spaniard or a Syrian or anything like that. But this is Roman peace, and Roman peace comes from victory and from maintaining military might and strength. So it comes from domination. It doesn't come from establishing a nice working relationship with your neighbors, treating them with respect, treating them as equals. There's no concept of international law or anything like that. No one else has a right to power or strength. It's only the Romans. And as long as the people outside either accept that or are forced to accept it by the strength of the Roman army, then that's fine. Um, But to some extent, it may make areas outside the empire less peaceful because obviously the empire creates a huge market for things like slaves, that once the wars of conquest stop, are harder to obtain. So you end up with, for hundreds of miles outside the Roman empire, probably more warfare between the tribes and peoples who are raiding their neighbors for captives, so they can swap them or trade them with merchants from the empire for the luxury goods that only the Romans can supply. So it can have a destabilizing effect on the wider world, but nevertheless within the empire, which is is most of Western Europe, most of North Africa, much of the Near East, things are remarkably stable, peaceful, and prosperous.
0: In the United States, just around the turn of the the millennium, in the year 2000, a year before the attacks on the trade towers, there was a great deal of talk in Washington about the American empire. And the notion of empire has drifted into American thinking for a long time. I mean, it was there at, in the mind of Teddy Roosevelt, Woodward Wilson, uh, George W. Bush. And, and, and But there's something profoundly different between the American character and the Roman character. I mean, I talk about the, the the character of of Romans they're they're being comfortable with savage behavior
1: I mean you have to put this in the context of the ancient world which is in place this is somewhere where as far as we can tell just about every society accepts slavery as perfectly normal and natural and fine as long as it doesn't happen to you um, and slavery is not based on any ethnic distinction it's it's anybody who's been captured by an enemy or who's fallen into death and sold themselves that way can become a slave and then is seen as, as inferior, lacks any rights. So they accept things like that in a way that we find very, very alien, and we find we're, we're uncomfortable with. They also accept warfare as a very common likely thing to occur in, in relations between states, between peoples, in a way that in the modern world. And in, certainly in the West, we don't want to, and we, we you know, we hope that peaceful coexistence is the ideal, rather than domination through military strength. You've also got to remember, though, that the Roman character does change a lot from the inhabitants of this small city on the River Tiber in the um, 8th, 7th centuries BC, to a time when in the 1st, 2nd centuries AD, you have... Millions of Romans dotted around the world, many of whom are ethnically not even Italian, let alone Roman. Some of whom probably don't even speak Latin. You could take somebody like St. Paul from the New Testament. He's a Jew from Tarsus in Asia Minor. The family has somehow got citizenship, and he has all the legal rights of any other Roman citizen. But there's no evidence he actually spoke Latin. So the Romans have, in a sense, you know, America has been the great melting pot, the great absorber of People from all over the wider world. The Romans almost did it the other way around. They went to the world, conquered them, and then absorbed people and made them Roman, rather than than bringing them in in that way. But there's, there are elements as well where the Romans, you know, they didn't bother to hide the fact that they'd conquered this empire. They were openly proud of it. They, as I say, they tried to justify themselves, saying, "Well, we'd, we'd fought wars with with just causes, with right causes. We'd always fought." And we'd fought very bravely. And if we didn't do it to them, then they'd do it to us. You know, everybody else out there was pretty... But that they built something lasting. But they they blatantly boasted that this empire is something we've taken by strength. The empire is something that we benefit from, that we become rich from, and we get prestige and glory. All of these things that, to a modern Westerner, we usually have to pretend a bit, Even even those who advocate such things, that we don't actually value that sort of thing. Whereas the Romans, it's... They don't have that doubt. For them this is a very good thing.
0: They also don't have any doubt when it comes to executing the enemies or massacring people who are in the way or object. I mean the I think you say at some point that Caesar massacred or killed or as many as a million Gauls.
1: Yeah, and, and enslaved probably another million in the course of about ten years of campaigning they have a view that is entirely pragmatic. If massacring a community or a section of that community or its leadership will achieve what you want, which is usually victory and securing that area, then that's fine. If being lenient to them will achieve what you want, then that's also fine. It's more about the end result. They don't advocate cruelty for the sake of cruelty. But if they feel and they are the only judges of this, that it is necessary cruelty, then they will do it. So it it is a rather sort of cold, calculating attitude to it that, again, is not in the Western tradition. Again, Western countries over the course of the last few centuries have sometimes done some pretty dreadful things, but they have usually, at least some people have criticized it or felt guilty about it, whereas the Romans don't. If they feel that the people being massacred deserved it, then that's absolutely fine. And they show the same normal human reaction that if some foreign power goes and does the same thing to them, then that is terrible. That's, you know, that's an atrocity. That's cruelty. That's viciousness. But their savagery in reply is fine because they're Romans. And as long as they they behave in a way that's faithful to others, they keep their word when they form treaties. And once someone has surrendered and the Romans have accepted their surrender, they treat them properly and fairly then again, that's all fine. So they do have a code of behavior, but it is very different to the modern one.
0: So the peace that is extended over the empire is backed implacably and forcibly by military force.
1: Yes. I mean, very often it is the threat of force. And then it's combined with making it worthwhile to the people you've conquered to to accept Rome, to do a deal with Rome particularly the, the leaders of any community, the aristocracy, the wealthy, or if they don't like you, then you find other people who can step into their shoes and replace them who will. So there is an element, you've got all these things that are handed out to you, you can become Roman, you can join in the system, you can benefit from it, you've got the benefits of stability, of prosperity, you know, all the economic opportunities the empire offers, but there is always a threat. And that threat is a very real one, people have seen it used even though over time, it's less and less necessary. The army is very big by the steps of the ancient world, and it's professional. It's the first sort of long-term permanent professional army on that scale, numbering, say, somewhere between 300 to 350,000 men by the early second century AD. But compared to a population that at a, a minimum and it's, it's probably much higher, but a minimum of 60 million is a figure often um, used these days. That's a very small force. This is not a force that could keep that empire under its control purely through the use of violence, through the threat of violence, because large areas of the empire just don't see a soldier.
0: You mentioned the, the change in, in the Roman character. Uh, you quote a line, I think, from Horace about Greek culture, capturing the Roman. When does that happen, and what does that mean?
1: Well, Horace is, is of course, writing under Augustus, the end of the first century, and it is striking. You know, Julius Caesar's last words probably weren't et tu brute, but were probably in Greek. And when he crossed the the river Rubicon, Alia est," it was probably, again, in Greek rather than Latin that he spoke. The aristocracy becomes fluently bilingual by the first century BC, if not slightly before and there is that merging. You have senators from all over the empire, including Greeks. Greek culture is admired, and the version and view we have of the Greek world is, to a great extent, filtered through the sort of how it was absorbed by the Romans. But again, we have to be careful because there are bits that, to a modern eye, look very appealing about Greek culture and Greek beliefs and other bits that are rather disturbing. You know, Again, the acceptance of slavery, the acceptance of warfare and violence is there in the philosophers. And certainly yeah. there in the behavior of of Greek states. But it is a change, and it shows they do learn and adapt and take things from the people that they conquer, and its ideas, its language, as well as people, of course, who become Romans. But there is a sort of merging of, of cultures. It isn't simply, we are Romans, we come out and impose our ideals, our way of doing things, our culture on the rest of the world. They do some of that, but they also take on quite a lot. Anything they think is good From the wider world and absorb that, which then spreads as this sort of overall imperial culture that crops up um, in northern Britain or in Egypt. So they're they're a strange mixture. They they are very willing. In fact, they boast of learning from others and of taking other people's ideas and practices, even to clothing. You you think the classic image of a Roman is somebody in a tunic with bare legs. By the third century, nearly everybody, every man's wearing trousers, which in the past they thought of as a barbarian thing, but they've discovered a practical. So it, it does, again, we're dealing with such a long period of human history over such a wide area and with such a mixed population that there is this, this merging of ideas that, again, adds to the strength of the empire because you people identify less and less with their particular region, their particular nation, because you don't really have modern ideas of nationalism.
0: So it's in no way a, a totalitarian state. I mean, it, it it's not... That would be a wrong way to think about it.
1: Uh, as I say, there are certain things you have to do, and you have to keep the peace, and you have to pay your taxes, but you are able to join the imperial establishment, you are able to become a Roman, and you will have emperors from Spain, from Africa, from the East in due course. But it doesn't interfere in your daily life. It doesn't care really what you think, how you go about your ordinary day-to-day work. It will bring in new um, new technology, new ideas, it will help those to spread, but it's not imposed. This is something as well. This is an empire that is run on a sort of shoestring budget in that it has very few bureaucrats, very few civil servants. In the second century, you probably know more than about 1500 to govern the empire. So you rely very much on the locals doing things for you.
0: You talk about the zenith of the Pax Romana in the second century AD, but it rises during the Republic and lasts how long? I mean, the the longer length of the period we're talking about would be how many hundred years?
1: You're talking about 500 years altogether. It depends where you live. Some provinces are more stable than others. Some get caught up more in the civil wars. It's civil wars that sap the strength of the empire from the 3rd century onwards and that most often disturb the peace. But because they weaken the military system, they weaken the defense of the empire, you end up with foreign invaders coming in and raiding more often than they could before. But depending on where you were, it continues for a long time. And it, the change is quite gradual. People are still prosperous, still see themselves. You are still the great superpower in the world. There is no rival to you, really, until the early fifth century. And you'll have the Eastern empire what become what we know as the Byzantines will continue for another 1,000 years after that. It's getting smaller and smaller, but it still thinks of itself as Roman, even though now it's speaking Greek, and many of its laws have their origins in the Roman system, many of it's, its administrative organization. There's a lot of continuity, and many of these areas are more stable than they would be, say, in medieval Europe at the same
0: period. And it comes to an end in the West in the 5th century AD, and then, as you say, continues for another 1,000 years in the East. The... the I don't want to ask you the question of what causes Rome to fall, because in many ways it, it doesn't. But I mean, cause look at our own landscape, our own ideas, our, our own buildings, our own notions of—many of, of our own notions of law and justice. But the you present the, the Pax Romana as a remarkable achievement and deserving of admiration. Is there any lesson— that we can learn for our own time?
1: I think there are, there are several. One of the most important should be obvious, but from the actions of various political leaders in the last few decades doesn't appear to be. One thing that strikes me very much as you look at the history of Roman expansion and the development of the empire is the way peoples in the provinces, in the areas that are conquered and outside the empire react to the Romans they see this big, powerful, rich state. Most of them do not then decide, well, I'm pro-Roman or anti-Roman. They try and work out, how can I use the power of that state for my benefit? Most local leaders have very local agendas, and they've got rivalries with their neighbors, with other kings, with other aristocrats that are far more important to them than their attitude to Rome. And you could extend this to looking at the, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq, where, Key decisions on how local groups acted, how they responded to U.S. and NATO forces based far more on local politics and local ambition than it was on any wider sense at all of do they like the West, do they dislike the West, do they like America, do they dislike America. You can't assume because somebody is your ally this month or this year that it will still be in their interest next year to do the same thing. Things might have changed. And you get that pattern where leaders sometimes fight the Romans and the same leaders sometimes turn against them and vice versa or do several things. And they are all out there. A lot of people invite the Romans to intervene in their area, hoping to benefit from the Romans in the same way that they might invite other powerful foreign groups in. And you've only got to look at, you know, Syria to date, look at incredibly complicated pattern a network of different groups, all with different agendas, all rather fluid, all rather changing. We do have this tendency to assume that it's nice and simple, that some are for us, some are against us, and that it will always be the same. You're ignoring the fact that these are human beings with ambitions of their own, and they're going to do what they perceive to be in their interest. This is something the Romans come to understand, and The main thing, one of the great reasons for Rome's strength is one thing that probably is perhaps less applicable to the modern world or less practical, in that the Romans are there, the Romans are powerful, and when they do invade an area, they tend to stay for a very long time. So you end up having to deal with them. It's much harder to persuade people to join you if you go in and then say, well, I'm going away again in a couple of years, and I'm not necessarily going to support you or help you. So there are elements where the Romans are so different because they are quite openly building this empire that they expect to last forever, they're not going away. Modern states don't think in that way, and that's probably a very good thing. But you have to remember that not only are all these these people out there you're trying to deal with have agendas of their own, ambitions of their own, but also they've got to make a balanced choice. What's best for them in the long term? And that might not necessarily be what you think is right for them or what you'd like to think. So you have that pattern. It's, It's one of the things that's striking looking at the Romans is the, the degree to which agendas are set, things are decided by the peoples they're actually coming into contact with, by their enemies, by their neighbors, by their allies. And then the Romans are drawn into something. And very often they do it clumsily and they make mistakes. So there's you know, there's usually a, a Roman foul up in a big scale to match anything done in the modern world as well that you can look at. So there are examples in that sense where they do, you know, they intervene in Macedonia, and then they, um, they depose the last king, set up this administration of four regions, and then go away again. And the four regions don't cope when another claimant, claimant to the throne turns up. And they're sort of reluctantly drawn in, well, I suppose we better do something about this then. It's also Rome's interest, particularly in the Republic from one region to another, depending on who happens to be in power at the time, what's going on, and they'll forget areas, which then might cause all sorts of problems for them. That's a very modern way of looking at things. You know, whilst we have this global perspective, we also tend to focus on, well, this is the area important for us at the moment. So we'll put all our resources there and we'll forget about the area that was important to us three years ago, four years ago which again means the romans you know they boast about this faith that they you can trust the romans if they are an ally they will be an ally forever it's not always true they often aren't terribly reliable but more often than not they are that makes them very strong in terms of foreign policy but it also commits them to war after war after war on behalf of these allies so you can copy the roman example but if you're going to do that you are creating an empire which i don't think anyone um, would be arguing for in the modern world.
0: No, I don't... No, no.
1: So you have to sort of be aware there are methods the Romans used that wouldn't look good on CNN that night as well. So.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, listen, Adrian, I'm delightful to talk to you. This is a marvelous book. I I've, Thank you, Adrian Goldworthy, for talking to us about the your new book, Pax Romana, being published by... Yale University Press. It was a pleasure and instructive.
1: Thank you very much. Nice to chat.
0: Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.